0: merry draft eve everybody got a lot to get to here gonna go through four more of the prospects that are projected for late lottery mid first round also need to unveil at the end of the episode uh, danny and i's draft boards at least of the guys that we did full scouting reports on so it's only i think eight guys but nonetheless it will be interesting to get that down and go back and look at how wrong we were in a little bit but first we, we got to get to some news here starting with a trade we have a trade we actually
1: have two trades, but we'll start with the far more significant one to the league landscape. So the trade, as it was, as it is, you know, it hasn't been consummated because this trade won't happen until the league year turns over. But it is Dwight Howard going finally to the Brooklyn Nets six years after it was originally going to happen. Oh yeah, I,
0: I was I I woke up and I saw that the trade had happened and. I just started scrolling back down through my tweets, which I always do in the morning to see what I missed while I was asleep. And I was just waiting for the Bobby Marks tweet about how, like, Dwight finally made it to the Nets because he was there in 2012 with the, the Dwight mayor drama. Well,
1: and it was funny for me because I recorded a radio spot for Charlotte like five minutes after the trade happened. So I had to process it quickly, but I enjoyed that. And so the trade is Dwight Howard going from Charlotte to Brooklyn. In exchange for Timothy Mozgov and two second round picks. One of them is number 45 this year. The other one is in 2021. And then they also, the Charlotte Hornets
0: received cash in the transaction. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how much cash, in fact, that is. Let's start with the motivation here from the Nets perspective. They save Mozgov's $16.8 million salary for the 2019-20 season. So that opens up a lot more cap room for them in the summer of 2019, they have to take on more this year in terms of Dwight Howard. They're, this, the reason this trade can't be consummated until after the league year turns over is because the Nets, well, the salaries don't match. And so therefore the Nets have to have cap space to take on the extra amount of, of Howard's salary beyond what would match. And they can only do that once the league year turns over. So now the Nets looking to be players in the summer of 2019, as a lot of teams are right now, but if they wanted to keep the cap hold of D'Angelo Russell, which is over $21 million, and also Rondae Hollis-Jefferson, both of whom will be restricted free agents that offseason on the books, they can get up to $42 million in space, dump Russell, dump Hollis-Jefferson's cap holds, and you're well over 60000000 million. They'll have a draft pick, of course, for the first time in four years as well. And then also Allen Crabb is another big salary that comes off the books the year after, but he has a player option there, probably won't opt out probably not quite ridiculous enough to deserve the voice there probably won't opt out but one that could maybe be moved as an expiring contract at the end there he is a player who has some modicum of value even if it's not 18.5 million worth so that's the motivation from the net standpoint and to do that they basically traded these two second rounders not amazing ones you know, they also had number 40 and apparently charlotte couldn't get that they only really get 45 in this deal and so they are setting up to be potentially free agent players in the summer of 2019.
1: What is most surprising to me about this trade is not so much Charlotte moving 2019-20 money in the, for the benefit of 1819, you know, getting getting richer this year. It's that they also, depending on how this is structured, and there is still flexibility in this, and I'll explain that in a second. It looks like Brooklyn's also punting on their space in 2018. And that I think is, in some ways, the biggest consequence for them of this trade is that they had this little pool of money. I had it at about thirteen million. It depends on a few things, like whether Joe Harris was coming back, Isaiah Whitehead, but around that amount of money, and plus the room mid-level exception, because that they would function as an under the cap team in that hypothetical. You know, they they could have done something with that, and of course, the money they would have used that would have taken away theoretically from their space in the summer of twenty nineteen, which you just laid out very well, but they also could have theoretically gotten an asset from another team they could have done numerous other elements there is a way for this to for them to have their cake and eat it too basically the trade doesn't work as constructed but they could brooklyn could send out a little bit more money that probably would not be going to Charlotte. It would probably be going to a third team to make this work under the trade rules. And then in that circumstance, they could function incidentally as either an over the cap or under the cap team, depending on how they structured their holds and whether they preferred the mid-level or cap space. I don't expect that to happen, but it could. And they don't have to make a decision on that until the moratorium is over because that's when this deal actually happens. yeah
0: because if they have to use cap space then uh, their exceptions uh, become limited a couple more things about this from the brooklyn perspective you mentioned the opportunity cost. i think that's an interesting one now you know they could have been maybe a kenneth Fareed destination they maybe could have been a jared bayless destination but unclear if a first round pick would have been possible there now another thing that we had suggested that they might do is maybe just try to move Damari Carroll. And maybe if you move Damari Carroll, who can actually play and you pick up, a Bayless probably probably not Bayless because the six would be using for cap space probably not Farid either because you're now the Nuggets want to reduce money so the idea would have been if you move someone like Carroll is you take on more money past 2019 and then give back a player who can play and now you're getting draft pick compensation I don't think just straight up taking on Bayless or Farid looked like that was going to get them as much as say a, a first round pick and But this trade is bad news for teams that are trying to get off of money right now uh, because it looks like, number one, the Nets don't want to take on any money that goes through 2020. Those are really bad contracts, and now they don't necessarily have the space to do it for even a contract that only has one more year remaining.
1: This trade, for the time being, is also bad news for Jared Allen. Allen really showed some some things last year. I liked him quite a bit in the draft process. We saw him at the Hoop Summit. I also liked him a lot last year as a member of the Brooklyn Nets, and it's always hard when you bring in a high-profile player to think that they will be marginalized in favor of a, a young guy who's who's up and coming, even though the Nets are still a young team, you know, trying to figure out who their core is. So it could be harmful there. There's also the possibility that Howard just gets bought out at some point. That could either be soon or that could be later on, depending on what he prioritizes, how much money is left on the table, all that sort of stuff. But just my at first blush, because one of the consequences of this trade for both teams is that Dwight Howard is a meaningfully better basketball player right now than Timofey Mozgov, is how that affects both.
0: Yeah, meaningfully better, maybe on the court, but of course, big surprise, Dwight Howard's act had grown tiresome in the Charlotte locker room, according to reports. And the Nets do have this really nice culture. I don't know if they want to mess that up necessarily. I mean, it seems like Dwight does want to be there. Perhaps. And he could still play a little bit. I think a lot of it depends on how his back and knees are feeling on a night-to-night basis. I don't like the idea of the Nets winning more games in this first year that they have their draft pick in quite some time. And you mentioned the developmental consequence potentially for Jared Allen. Another consequence of this is it would greatly reduce the chances of D'Angelo Russell and the Nets agreeing on an extension. I thought the chances of that were pretty low anyway. I'm sure Russell would demand A lot of money as just the former... Number two overall pick and the nets in terms of his health, in terms of his impact on winning, shooting percentage, all those things just with that injury plagued year, the surgery, have not seen nearly enough to really want to commit big money. So it probably wasn't going to happen anyway. But now it's really not going to happen, uh, you would think, because that would eat into their potential. And they figure, hey, you know what? If he really blows up next year, we'll still have his restricted rights anyway, if we need them, but we'd rather just keep our options open. And and it's not a question of, oh, using his low cap hold and then signing to a contract. on top of that it's going to be going to be more of an either or proposition likely with the the cap space because his cap hold at 21 million as the number two overall pick is so large and this those guys at the very top of the draft are the ones where increasing it from 200 uh from 200 percent makes it like a a much different proposition in terms of how big his cap hold is but that's another thing to watch here um and, and another thing too to the note is like all these teams with 2019 aspirations, there's going to be a lot of teams out there right now. I'm going to take a look at my sheet. And this, obviously, this is very much subject to change with trades, et cetera. But I've got 15 teams right now that project to have 20 million or more in cap space. Again, when free agents get signed, when free agents get re-signed, you know, that that's very, very much going to change. And, but it will be a, a different market almost assuredly in 2019 and then also this is bad news for free agents this year in 2018 and good news for those teams that still have some cap space i mean it is just going to be such an ugly market if you're a team look or, or if you're a player looking to get a contract above the mid-level. We've talked about that ad nauseum.
1: Yeah, and it's even harder if you're a player who's trying to get a contract at the mid-level at this point because it just takes out another team that you could have yeah. used for leverage to get it, to get the full mid-level out there because there weren't really many in that kind of low teens range where it looked like the Nets were going to be. So they aren't the Brooklyn leverages for that and for the time being, at least.
0: Yeah, restricted free agents also uh, can't be too happy about that. Uh, we'll turn to Charlotte's perspective right after this from Lightstream. Here's an easy way to save some money. You can lower the interest rate on your credit card debt with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. If you are a consumer with good credit, you can get a great interest rate and no fees. Their credit card consolidation loans start at just 5.89% APR If you opt into their auto pay, I don't know about you guessing that's probably a a cheaper rate than you're paying on a credit card. You could choose your funding, date, which could be even as soon as today. Again, if you have good credit, but maybe just a little bit more credit card debt than you might like, these consolidation loans are are fantastic. Their website, Lightstream is a very good way to describe their website, I would say. It's intuitive, easy to navigate, not a difficult process. What's more, my listeners get an additional interest rate discount on top of Lightstream's already low rates. The only way to get that discount is to go to Lightstream.com slash Capspace. That's L-I-G-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash Capspace. Easy to remember because we talk about Capspace all the time around the program. That's Lightstream.com slash Capspace. Of course, those rates are subject to credit approval includes the 0.5% auto pay discount terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice visit lightstream.com for more information so a lot of people were really killing this trade for charlotte this is mitch kupchak's first move of course the beautiful symmetry of him acquiring the toxic Timofey Mozgov contract that got him fired in la among many other things of course is not lost to me did you hate this trade as much for Charlotte as some of those guys? I think like KP gave him a D plus he's usually more judicious with his grades than we are when it comes to negative grade. I think he, he didn't really seem to care for it what do you think
1: I wouldn't go quite that far but I I, I do think that it is- a big opportunity it's it, sorry it's it's an opportunity cost for them but not nearly as big for Charlotte as it would have been for other teams because they were not one of those franchises in 2019-20 that was really looking to have a lot of money so they're not hamstringing themselves beyond just the financial constraints of having another guy who makes a lot of money and isn't particularly good so that part of it i don't think is at you know in in a vacuum it's worse than it is for them the other challenge with charlotte what makes them different from a lot of these teams is we knew they weren't going to pay the luxury taxes here so if you treat that as a constraint then one of the goals is to make the best team possible if they're not going to trade kemba walker and i think this to me this is a big sign saying we're not trading kemba walker at least not right now which is bad
0: but but I think that was always the case. Sure, angle. that's
1: it's it's the wrong it's the wrong decision for I, them. I, I mean, but Mitch you know, Kupchak well, did not get know.
0: hired by saying, "Oh, hey, we're we're going to come in and we're going to trade Kemba Walker." Mitch Kupchak is very exactly. experienced at doubling down on already hopeless situations, and uh, that is apparently how he got the job by convincing Michael Jordan. That he, but but that that's already right. died in the will. I don't think that we can say that like this is a bad trade because of that.
1: Because of that. Yeah. Right. Right. And and what's funny about it from that perspective is I mentioned, I personally feel that Dwight Howard is meaningfully better right now than Timothy Mozgov. You can say that that part doesn't matter as much to them because it's more Dwight Howard versus Willie Hernan Gomez because who, they, who Charlotte gave up two second round picks for at the deadline and is now the backup center in waiting so that is still a meaningful difference it makes uh, this is a point kevin noted in his piece is that this makes charlotte a lot more susceptible to injury this is much more similar now to sixteen seventeen, when their season was derailed in no small part because of cody zeller missing time
0: yeah i'll, and I'll never forget now that get, stat of them going three and 17 in the 20 games that he missed from that year
1: yeah and, and so and also now the big benefit for Charlotte is that they get use of either the full mid-level exception or really close to it, which will help them get a lot better. The problem with that in terms of center depth is they're not going to use that on a center. Presumably back a point guard, maybe something on the wing, just use it to make the team better. There are a couple different ways they can do this, do so. Overall, I think, you know, clearing money for this year can make them better if that is something that is important to Charlotte for whatever reason. And we might be seeing a, a playoff spot open in the East, depending on what happens to LeBron James. You know, if, if Cleveland ends up breaking up, then that, that ends up bringing a spot. There also could be injuries. You, many things could happen. So that part of it is, you know, it, it's it's disconcerting, but it's not necessarily awful for their specific circumstance.
0: Here's a couple of ways to think about this this trade that make it maybe not look as bad. Now, You know, you can cool with whether this inception or not. One is remember in the late 30s teams buy picks for 3.5 million you know it's probably more like 2 million once you get into the mid 40s we don't know where Brooklyn will be in 2021 but uh, probably you know around the middle of the league so you're talking about two picks that are probably around 45 and so if you buy picks you know you buy those picks for like 4 million bucks you know they took on an extra 8.9 million in salary granted some of it extends a year past but if you look at just the the salary so you're taking on an extra an extra 8.9 million in salary for 2 seconds that are kind of milling. All right. You know, but you also got some cash as well to so to maybe equal that out and we'll see how much that cash ends up being. I'm guessing it will be pretty significant. Uh that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is in this day and age, what an extra 9 million or so in salary. You know, that's pr- 2 seconds is kind of the going rate for that as long as they're not like two really bad seconds. You will recall the Bulls getting off a of Jose Calderon's money which was about 8 million in the summer of 2016 when there was much more money around, by the way, the lakers for two second round picks and so that's maybe another way to look at it. Is that this is to take on that extra amount of money for two second round picks is not totally ridiculous especially when you're getting some cash as well like that value proposition is not totally out of whack to me and the other thing that charlotte gets here is if they are trying to compete they've now got some spending room I, i've got them right now with the cap hold for Trevion graham although it seems now that Graham can probably be gotten with an offer sheet. But with that, with the 11th pick, assuming they don't pick up their non-guarantee on Julian Stone, I have them at about $6.4 million below the tax line and obviously you can't do, i mean they could go over for a little bit but charlotte is not interested in paying the tax that is obviously was another huge driver of this it was for a lot of their transactions last year but they at least have enough money now they could probably spend about four million leave themselves about 2.5 million below the tax to sign some more guys and and, and conduct some more business if they want to sign this second round i mean they already have with graham and with the 11th pick they already have 13 roster spots accounted for And there are guys out there in that free agent market now because that's the other thing that's torpedoed them in recent years is just absolutely terrible backup point guard play. And so with the being armed with that amount of money, you know, maybe they can at least get a credible backup a Raymond Felton, uh, you know, some someone along those lines, probably not enough to get like an Isaiah Thomas, but they've at least got some money here. Although maybe like Milos Teodosic could be someone they could look at if he comes available as we talked about yesterday. Hopefully something in the backup point guard market could emerge that they could feel decent about. That That's clearly their number one need. But the point was made now that you're keeping Kemba Walker around for right now. Well, if Marvin Williams and MKG opt in, could see actually MKG potentially opting out in the summer of 2019. We'll see what kind of year he has. But if they re-sign Walker for anything close to what his going rate is probably going to be, you know, you're right back in tax hell. Maybe not tax hell, but tax heck once again. So this is a component of kicking the can down the road, especially if they sign a backup point guard for more than one year uh, with that four to five million or so that I anticipate that they will have to work with. You, you've still potentially got tax runs but you know probably not because Kemba Walker seems unlikely to be on this team but even without him they've got they would have 10 million in space and they would suck so they really wouldn't be in the free agent market at least the top of the market in 2019 if you so i i don't think as you said at the beginning that there's this huge opportunity cost for them for taking on this money in 2019 anything else you wanted to add on this one yeah
1: one other thing which is if we take it as a constraint as i would that charlotte had to get under the tax a lot of the other ways they would have done that would have cost them assets So that would be, and remember, Charlotte, they have their own first round picks moving forward. They do not have their own 2018 second. You know, they have because of the just an outstanding trade from like, I think it was 2016. Yeah,
0: the Courtney Lee trade, I want to say. I believe that's right. So so
1: it would have been hard for them. them. It would have been hard for them to do that in a way that would really work because they don't have a lot of good value contracts the players they have you know maybe theoretically at the end of days somebody would have taken like not not have taken on jeremy lamb for nothing but taken on jeremy lamb with a menial asset something like that but i wouldn't have played the game for that so if you take that as a given for them this is not the biggest consequence for it and when you consider that their only draft asset this year is the 11th pick which is way too strong to unload that kind of money there might not have really been a middle ground here and so they were able to do it by taking on money for next year and i mean i'm guessing there are some other teams that are might be kicking themselves that an offer like this wasn't available to them because there are a lot of teams that have money for next season that they would rather not have on their books right now
0: i mentioned graham you know their need clearly is a backup point guard so once you get to within a little bit of the tax I, i mean it seems unlikely that Even, you know, a $3 million a year offer sheet necessarily would be something that Charlotte would match. I don't know if there's anybody out there who thinks Travion Graham is a $3 million a year player, but I might take a a flyer on him for that amount of money. We've talked about him quite a bit here. One other thing we should probably discuss, though is the irony of this series of transactions for charlotte
1: yeah i put together kind of the transaction log here so last summer charlotte traded away miles plumley marco bellinelli who was an expiring contract and the 41st pick for dwight and number 31 they incidentally then traded down from 31 to 40 for cash so the, you know that that's really what the draft pick part of that ended up being for the hornets and then this summer they traded Dwight for Mozgov, 45, and 2021 20, second. So the net trade was Miles Plumley, Marco Bellinelli, and then the 41st pick in 2017, which became Tyler Dorsey, for Timofey Mozgov, the 31st pick, the number 45 this year, and that 2021 20, second. And so Plumley, in many ways, is what they were actually looking for because while Mozgov to me is better than Plumley, Plumley was about. I think most people would say
0: Plumley is better than Mozgov. It's. Uh, I would
1: have to think about it, it a little it, bit, and I don't want to think about no, it a little bit. No, no, I
0: don't. I don't think we should. I, I, and Mozgov, you, you mentioned like Mozgov could maybe play some minutes for them as a third center next year.
1: Yeah, sure. And and so basically, they got back what they want. I mean, you should also. I, I should also note that in that, Charlotte also got a year of Dwight Howard, and Dwight Howard had a pretty productive year for them. He was their starting center when he was healthy, and so they got that but it's it's amazing that they made that move kind of and i i was a big supporter of the dwight howard trade from charlotte's perspective and then they basically
0: undid it in in a pretty remarkable way i mean i don't think that like dwight howard was the reason they didn't make the playoffs last year those uh so
1: hey we have to give michael carter williams plenty of credit for that on this (laughs) podcast
0: all right we do have another trade a little bit more low level but one that does have uh, some interesting implications. The Lakers have acquired the 39th pick from the Sixers. The Sixers actually have four second rounders. And this is one another one that isn't going to be able to be complete until the league year because Philly in 2019 is getting the Bulls pick, which went to the Lakers in the aforementioned Calderon deal. And of course, the omnipresent cash. Philly, however, cannot receive any cash until the league year turns over. They've already accepted their maximum 5.1 million for the season
1: well and and that could potentially be significant for the lakers because the lakers if they have a successful free agency one of the hallmarks of those teams trying to kind of clear stuff and get things moving is to use cash and trades and so this will i don't know how much it'll be but this will reduce their allocation for the 1920
0: season yeah Uh, another nice thing though is that if they want to bring a guy in and they want to use cap space that a second rounder doesn't count for anything against the cap the way a first rounder does so that's useful if they want to bring in who they get at 39 and also we'll see what the amount actually ends up being but i haven't seen that report anywhere yet and also remember that they're sending out this bulls pick and that bulls pick is probably probably due to be right around number 39 or so next year i would guess uh but in a worse draft and The time value that so that you know the cash it wouldn't shock me if the cash were more like you know a million bucks or something i don't think this is going to be you know a three million dollar transaction when you consider the pick going back agreed so i think they'll still have plenty of money that the lakers will and uh i don't think the lakers have used any of their cash for this year yet so maybe they could do they could still use some for this year and then some for next year but and that is one pick though that maybe the warriors could have bought for example Uh, that maybe a Houston could have bought that uh, now is no longer going to be available. But you could see even Philly with how many guys they have in their roster with Jonah Bolden coming over reportedly next year. They could even sell their other decent second rounder as well.
1: Which I believe is the pick immediately preceding this one. And it makes sense they would want to do that. Or the other significance for me with this and why I thought it was a little bit strange. This happens every once in a while is that when it's a a pick later in the draft and where this is the whole trade, it's not like in the Charlotte Brooklyn deal where the pick that would change hands was not the most significant part of the trade where you just never know who's going to be available. And it's possible that, you know, that the market could be there. However, you know, getting a second round pick, which is probably going to be at a similar level. Maybe they would rather have that than cash. So there's a possibility for Philly. But I I don't know. I'm always of the style of maybe the a guy who a team is really interested in falls a little bit further and then you could get some value there. It seems like this offer would have been there no matter what, but it's not a big
0: deal. Some player option news. Dwayne Dedman opting in to $7.2 million for next season with the Hawks. That's, I think, what we had projected. Also project that Mike Mascala will opt in there. That'll leave the Hawks with a little over $20 million or so in space. Does it surprise you at all that Dedman has opt in or do you think this is, I mean, it wasn't clear cut to me, but I, I think this is what I anticipated would happen.
1: It's what I anticipated as well. It was To me, it was closer to 50-50 than most, but I don't think he was going to get $7.2 million, and I don't think that waiting an extra year is going to be a big deal. Also, Deadman, if he's not moved before then— And now, theoretically, he's actually trade-eligible on draft night. I don't think any team's going to make a move on him that early. But theoretically, he can do what his predecessors, Marco Bellinelli and Arisani Alisova did, which is if the Hawks end up being bad, he can just get a buyout in February and end up on a team for the stretch run anyway.
0: Yeah. Now, certainly, Deadman is another guy who can help a team. It showed a little bit of stretchability last year, which was a new development for him. And Mark Deeks was really surprised that he opted in I'm not as surprised, but I think the league doesn't value Deadman maybe as much as he does. And uh, I think you and I are a little more lukewarm on him. But but I think generally that that was not an incredibly surprising decision. And we know that Deadman has had no qualms about opting out because he did it last summer. And it looked like he really might get squeezed. And then he was able to get that one plus one, you know, starting at about six million last year so six million per season that and the player option that he opted into so that ended up being the right decision to opt out last year so he's not afraid of doing that i think uh, his agent did a good job last year of helping him opt in or out uh, and you know presumably did the same this season opting out kylo quinn in new york 4.2 million dollar declined player option he will be an unrestricted free agent And this is another one where it doesn't really affect the Knicks cap space that much, unless Ennis Kanter were also to opt out, which he's actually made some noises about doing. I would be shocked if he actually does it, but it's not impossible. So, uh, you know, we'll we'll see with O'Quinn. I mean, this is one of those ones where maybe he just hopes he can get a little bit longer term of a deal, but with the center market as tight as it is, you do wonder about that.
1: And we'll see what he prioritizes. I mean, he might be leaving a little bit of money on the yeah. table to go to a better situation. He's 28 as well. I,
0: I, that's another thing. That, that This this is kind of sure. the time. I, I mean, I don't anticipate him having, you know, we'll see who the Knicks end up drafting as well next year. You know, he actually got playing time. He played well. I, I don't know if that's a guarantee he's going to do that again, and especially when he's a year older. So, you know, it probably makes sense to opt out, but it wasn't by any means a clear decision
1: we should also yeah you talked about who the Knicks draft there is some reporting that they're considering or trying to move up we'll see if that actually happens on tomorrow's podcast and on the draft on thursday but i mean one of the things that was interesting to me is that i think was ian bagley had the report that they're looking at mo Bamba. first of all that sounds really Knicks. he is also Bamba grew up in harlem so he has a connection to the area but You and I both think Kristaps Porzingis' most likely position after this ACL injury, at least for the short term, but probably for a long term, is center. So, of course, the Knicks will trade up and drop to center.
0: Well, and talking about the whole trading up aspect, what dovetails a little bit with that Begley report is John Gavoni's piece on the Grizz potentially heating up now trying to trade number four. And with Doncic looking increasingly likely to go to the Hawks at three, The Grizz are talking to no fewer than seven teams, apparently. And I think we talked about this conception too, that especially with Memphis, some of the guys around that range not wanting to go there, that they would look to trade down and look to trade Parsons at the same time. Now, some of these deals that are being floated, and I'm guessing that this is probably coming, this report is coming from the Memphis side, you would think, because the deals being discussed are pretty favorable to Memphis, number one, and number two, How else are you going to know that seven teams are involved in the bidding, unless that's coming from Memphis, who's receiving all of these offers, apparently? Uh, The report is, you know, maybe until they're on the clock at four and they know who's there, the offers won't be their best. But some of the things that were being talked about, and really Parsons is such a bad contract that even if you're talking about okay, we'll take back Biombo from Orlando, right? Like one of the things that Gavoni said is Orlando is being asked to include Evan Fournier, who has three years left on his contract, but can actually play in exchange for Parsons. And, you know, who knows what else to to match the salary necessarily. And then Memphis would drop down from four to six. That two-spot drop is not nearly enough for me to also... Dump Parsons and give up someone who can play the additional amount that Parsons is owed over Biombo. Even that is probably. I mean, Biombo is making eighteen million a year, a little bit more than that. But even that to me is almost. You know, if you look at it as twelve million extra and dead money to drop down two slots when Memphis, you know, probably is in a bind at four anyway because the guys that they would want to select haven't wanted to go there and work out or give them the medical or in the case of Bamba have actually specifically said they don't want to play there so i I think what's being floated so far is not realistic that parsons contract is just too toxic even if you're talking about the knicks moving up from like four to nine it's just i'm not sure who's going to be the matching side i mean maybe it'd be joe kim noah going back but then going down from four to nine like why does memphis want to do that this this is a tough trade a tough conception to come up with if you're really insisting on including parsons like that's that's just tough. I mean, it's just he—he's too bad of a contract. I don't think that there's much that could be sent back. Maybe Biombo would be fair, but even that might be too much to give up if you're the Magic, especially because I—I I, I, we'll we'll talk about our draft board in a little bit, but I don't see a huge difference between four and six in this draft necessarily. At least personally, maybe the teams
1: and with Orlando specifically. I mean, I guess it would depend who's on the board, but I don't see them as being super into a particular person who might go at like five you know there there are circumstances of course where that can happen and what i think is interesting about this situation is that the best player to fall in terms of value proposition of trading this pick is luka Doncic, who is also the player memphis should take if if he falls to them yeah so it, it, it's a a challenging proposition like i mean if if he's the one who ends up ends up falling there i don't know if that's going to happen but man uh, I, i'm excited for it and and we'll see where it goes
0: last little bit here following up on yesterday's Kawhi report stephen a smith reporting that Kawhi specifically told greg popovich in their meeting yesterday that he does not want to be there that's bad for san antonio and stephen a he he does talk to a lot of people despite kind of being a blowhard on tv and having this shtick you know i, I don't think that his reports are necessarily that erroneous uh despite his uh, crazy persona so uh Let's talk a little uh, draft process here. We may not go quite as long as we did on some of, uh, some of the guys yesterday, uh, but let's give it a start here. Where do you want to start first?
1: Let's start with Miles Bridges. He is a swingman. That's the term I use for twos and threes. Out of Michigan State, 6'7", 220, with a 6'10", wingspan, 6% body fat, and Bridges is interesting. Two years at Michigan State, could have come out after last year, decided not to, came back. 22 PER, 572 true shooting, 27 usage, 36% from three on about six attempts per game, 85% from the line on on 3.2, though it is worth noting he shot up from 69% to 85% from the line. So we'll, we'll see what, what really is the truth there. And with Bridges, I see him, sorry, I'm going to have to use some first names here. With Miles Bridges, I see him as kind of a, a piece that you have, not necessarily a centerpiece, but it's it's nice to have just a capable player at the two and the three because there aren't that many of those in the league.
0: Yeah, you know, he's a, a real interesting guy. If he just had a little bit longer arms and a little bit better hands defensively and was just a little bit more active as a playmaker defensively, I would be like really high on him, But 6'6", six, 6'9", six, six, wingspan, eight, seven and a half standing reach. I mean, that's kind of, that's below average for a small forward. And now what he does have, though, is a very strong body uh, at 220. And he also has very quick feet. Uh, comparing him as we're obviously going to do with the name similarity and also as potential 3 and D type of players in this range in the draft, comparing him with Mikhail Bridges, I think his feet are actually a lot quicker. And that he also is strong enough that, you know, if it's kind of a race to get to the spot, he's able to prevent the guy from getting a shoulder pass, turning the corner, knocking him backward. I thought that he had a lot of plays where he was able to cut off the guy's first move with his chest really well and just his feet for a guy with his build were very nice. And that's the type of player that, you know, even if you don't have great length, has a fair amount of, of switchability. In the post, he's got to get stronger, play a little bit more intensely, but I think he's strong enough and has the build to do that. I think he was more, he he was very concerned with not fouling this year, which in some ways is good, you know, especially out in the perimeter. He really made a big show of keeping his hands back, but probably did that a little bit too much in the post. Didn't want to play physically, didn't want to get into foul trouble uh you know he only gave up 11 points on 20 isolation possessions you know not a huge number i wouldn't put too much stock in, in that number with only 20 possessions but in those 20 possessions i think i only saw him get beat all the way to the rim once you know without getting a decent contest now the arms are a little short so if he does cut the guy off and he can still you, a guy can kind of rise up over him a, a little bit and he doesn't have a, amazing hands as i said interesting that he had 43 blocks as a freshman only 26 as a sophomore I'm not sure, I didn't watch much of him as a freshman, but he played on the perimeter a lot more this year, cleaning the glass at a nice piece. Uh, And there was some follow-up analysis of that by the Stepien on what his free throw rate was when he was playing the four versus the three. It was really low at the three, it was much higher at the four. Um, So I don't know if he can be a real, you know, start as a combo forward in the nba just due to the lack of length but i think he can guard a lot of guys i mean i think he's got a better chance of guarding some of those power wings than say uh mikhail bridges just to due, due to being a little bit stout having a little bit quicker feet uh what did you think of him defensively
1: I liked him overall. A note that I had, I thought he did a nice job moving his feet, but there were times when it seemed like he didn't do enough to stop the guy from getting where they wanted to go. So I think some of that is the driving to a pull up type of play yeah. where he's, he's kind of there, but he's not necessarily preventing that, especially when he ended up on, on smaller guards. So. The, the word that I came up with in, in various moments with him, I, it originally started with Miles Bridges' handle, was that he's functional. Like, he he does a lot of things, you know, pretty well. He can hit open shots. He can do a little bit with the ball in his hands. And defensively, I think it's the same way. Like, he's not going to be a blanket to, that you throw over a guy. But if you put him into different assignments, you want him to work. Kind of like what I talked about yesterday with Mikhail Bridges, where I don't think you want him as the guy on Kawhi, on whoever the other team's ace ace forward is but if he's on the other player i think he'll be okay
0: i don't think he's going to be a lockdown guy there but i think he can be an adequate option on those type of players i mean not every team has a lockdown guy at the three and i think he can be there just because of his strength i think he's got a decent chance of not getting overpowered he's got a decent chance of cutting guys off even if you know maybe he's not going to be able to get the best contest on some of those plays you mentioned where a guy is getting to a spot and rising up Um, in conventional pick and roll defense. We didn't see it a lot because they switched a lot. You know, he was playing at the three they're switching everything with Jaron Jackson, for example, but the few times we did see him try to fight over a screen, I thought it looked decent. And I think he just, he plays physically, he plays intensely. He, he likes to keep his hands on guys off the ball. And, and, you know, I didn't see him make a ton of mental errors. I, the blocks thing is interesting, you know, to have those that many blocks as a freshman, not as much as, as a sophomore. Uh, let's turn to his offense now. What were your thoughts there? So, his shot goes
1: in, but there were times where it just looked a little bit weird to me. And especially that was true on pull-ups. Granted, I don't think Miles Bridges is going to be taking a ton of pull-ups in the NBA. You know, I don't think the situation is going to present itself. And his isolation game, he he did okay. You know, he, he did well a little bit under a point per possession there. But I saw more just like those deep twos going in. And I'm not necessarily saying thinking that those are going to go in all the time. But he's active offensively. I, I thought that he actually, when I watched him, I thought he could do some nice work as a smaller cog and a bigger machine offensively. Had some good cuts and moved around and was you know like and could basically force his guy to work, which is definitely a good thing for a complementary offensive piece. His handle, this is where I came up where I started calling him functional. It's not a fancy handle, but it gets him where he needs to go. And also something I I liked from him, I saw it a couple times in the film, was Bridges getting an early seal in transition, which I love for a guy his size to do when the opportunity presents itself. And I think coaches should encourage players his size to do that all the time.
0: Yeah, the Jason Richardson, he, he was one of the guys who would do that when he was in Phoenix, and Steve Nash would hit him with the hit ahead pass. If he was ahead of the pack, he would just try to get a deep seal and post up. I like that. His post game, yeah, I, again, I would say functional. I mean, I, hopefully he can get to a little more power game, You know, really more against switches potentially if you're putting your one on him to put more length on some of the team's best ball handlers. Maybe you could punish there. He, he showed somewhat of a skill level. You know, you had a couple of Dirk fades, some decent moves in the post, but not really, you know, a dominating player down there. Again, you know, he was playing at the three most of the time, uh, not really going to have the space to attack the way you might in the nba his finishing around the basket was interesting we mentioned the low free throw rate and you know there are not many guys with as low of a free throw rate as he's had who have been successful in the NBA. Although again, you know the lack of space was part of it, but another part of it was just that he, when he gets to the rim, he can go up pretty soft. He'll try a lot of flips and scoops and try to slip the ball underneath the defense. He gets a lot of rise, especially off a of two feet as a one foot jumper, not really nearly as explosive. You know he can get up for some alley oops off of two feet. He can fly in from the wing off of two feet but off of one foot not really quite the finish he does have a nice right hand though for a lefty which is always nice to see and then his shooting you mentioned his form doesn't really lend itself to jumpers off the dribble his shot selection was definitely questionable at times I and you'll see that with a lot of guys who are like oh i'm gonna play the three this year and i'm gonna prove how, how good my perimeter skills are and that just leads to taking a lot of bad contested twos uh He was much better as a shooter with time and space. I mean, I know that's true for everyone to some degree, but the way his form is when he was rushing it, it did really seem to degrade things quite a bit. uh, And he shot it much better. Unguarded catch and shoots, he was 18 out of 38. 70% E field goal percentage on those. Now, worth noting too that for Synergy, this is just manually logged. So when a shot goes in, you're probably just more likely to log it as unguarded. I mean, the, the threshold between guarded and unguarded is not a bright line necessarily when you are talking about a jump shot uh but you know even, even on catch and shoots that were guarded pretty decent percentage 54 percent adjusted field goal i think where it really went downhill for him was in his jumpers off the dribble which he took a fair amount of it was 98 of those attempts and, and was only 34 percent from the field 38 e-field goal percentage on those shots but hopefully that's not a shot that he's going to need to take as much in the nba and then his passing for a, a player of his ilk to be close to three assists a game not bad either
1: yeah, I, I thought there were some plays where he forced a pass or he missed it, but he did throw some really nice ones. There was one to Jaron Jackson in transition that was just absolutely gorgeous, and that's great to see from a player who's going not going to be asked to do that very often just to have, have some of those good ones in there. And it seemed to be as you mentioned this, but his that he had, I, every once in a while, I'd be like, man, how many turnovers does this guy have? Where sometimes it was bad passes, sometimes it was just, you know, something with his dribble. But yeah, Bridges is, is interesting. And again, positional value here. I I could certainly see him just even if he's just in the league for a long time, and I'm sure some people will compare him not because they're the same physically, but just because of certain elements of their game and they went to the same college to like Gary Harris. Gary Harris, not a spectacular player, but a good player and a functional player and he's incredibly valuable for the nuggets and bridges has the potential to do more than that because he's a little bit bigger and we'll see what he can do with the ball in his hands at the next level
0: yeah i don't know if he would be there at 14 but i think he would be a great pick for the nuggets at 14 if they can get him he fits right into exactly what they need uh as you mentioned gary harris but i i would not necessarily anticipate that he will be around them all right we'll, we'll get to the rest of these guys but first this from lending club whether it's unexpected repairs medical expenses credit card debt sometimes a little money can make a big difference and you can get At lendingclub.com, they'll give you access to low rates on loans of up to forty thousand dollars for almost any purpose. It's a lot easier than going to a bank, lowers your interest rate compared to credit cards, and it's just way easier as well. You go to lendingclub.com, you enter the amount that you need, and you find out just in minutes whether you're approved or not. So, it's really if you're someone who can use a loan like this, not be a huge opportunity cost in terms of time to see if you can get approved or not. And when you go and check your rate at LendingClub.com Capspace, it's not going to impact your credit score. So you really have nothing to lose other than just a, a couple of minutes. And, and it's something that could save you a lot of money or really provide you some cash when you need it. For more than 10 years, Lending Club has helped millions of people with over $31 billion in loans. Once again, the way to get started with them is LendingClub.com slash Capspace. Please remember, because we talk about Capspace all the time on the program. Once again, LendingClub.com Capspace, all loans made by WebBank, member FDI SQL housing lender. Who's next on our list here?
1: Let's go to Shea Gilgus Alexander. Combo guard height. I'm not necessarily gonna say I was gonna say combo guard sorry, but he's only 180 pounds, 6'6, six, six, 180 pounds, 7 foot wingspan, 8'8 standing reach, which is ridiculous. And the biggest question with Shay is whether you believe in his shooting percentages, because he shot 40% from three, but it was only on 57 attempts for the entire season, and he shot 82% from the line on a much larger pool of attempts if you think that shooting is anywhere close to real even, even at the low volume, then he's something interesting. But if you think that's more like the Duke power forwards, where it was a couple of shots going in that might not be able to go in at the NBA level, his appeal wanes significantly.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. I was more impressed by him offensively and less impressed than I expected to be defensively, in particular defense. I was quite disappointed with what I saw on film, although the potential I believe is there, but he's got a long, long way to go let's say the shooting is decent. I mean, and there's some reasons to really like that. 40% on threes overall, but only 23 out of 57, not a ton of attempts less than two per game. Does get to the foul line a a reasonable amount, 46% free throw rate. And one thing that I actually was more impressed by than I thought I would be was his jump shooting off the dribble, which is something that we didn't see from two point range. We didn't see a ton of that we saw him at the Hoop Summit, though, I think both of us were surprised that he was as low-ranked at the time as he was because I thought he was a very steady, solid player, and I was really surprised that they played. I think it's Lindell Wiggins is the guy's name over him. Those jumpers off the dribble from two-point range and with the spacing they had, I mean, remember we talked about this with Knox, where really Knox was the only guy on this team who would be out there who could make a three. Maybe they'd have Wenny and Gabriel out there a little bit, but he was you know just an okay shooter at the four diallo and, and a traditional five weren't weren't to hit shots but his ability to kind of just get to his spot and either shoot a step back or shoot over a smaller player i thought actually looked pretty good i think that that could be a way that he could bump his scoring because that's really the question of all right can this guy be a really good you know an above average offensive point guard that's the big question to me about his development and i'm split on that because he has a lot of nice skills but as you mentioned you know just you wonder whether he can create quite enough shots really to be a guy who's your primary pick and roll ball handler your primary guy initiating the offense i I tend to think that you're looking at him more as a number two guy as an off the dribble shot creator and i think you know his three-pointer doesn't get a lot of them off as we noted and you would think that you would get more of them off because they have all these other guys that can't shoot and be collapsing in on him. so you know, he would be open, but he's just got it from three. He's got a much slower release, much more of a set shot than he has from two. And again, it goes in. I think it looks pretty good, but can he speed that up? Make it a little bit more versatile. That's a, a big question mark.
1: It's also exacerbated by teams going under on him pretty regularly right. when he was at Kentucky. And so like you're seeing the way that the asset the like kind of the risk management proposition that all these teams facing in Kentucky and Kentucky had all these structural problems in terms of their offense. And one of the other things I liked from Shea was that he had some smart cuts. He had some like nice off ball stuff. And so you're like, Oh, okay, you know, you can do a little bit with that. Had a had an inside out move in transition that I really liked. So it was something with his handle. Something else that bothered me with him is I thought there were too many circumstances, and a lot of this could be spacing-related, where Gogus Alexander just threw up low-chance stuff on drives, you know, scoop shots, like all that that sort of stuff, where it just didn't have as much of a chance. He ended up the year, I'm using the Stepien shot charts, at 58% at the rim. I wish that number were a little bit higher. It could be with better spacing, but i think you're right though that the big question and i actually have a danny story time connecting with my real gm piece on this for patreon subscribers is creating separation and i still don't love him as a creator of separation
0: yeah and then you get into trouble because he actually can really operate in pick and roll especially with his height excellent at finding the weak side shooter when they would help off of him you know he definitely makes some pro passes left hand right hand hook passes uh pretty decent craft getting into the lane i mean you mentioned he throws up some kind of low percentage finishes but he also has a pretty high skill level on those you know he's got the scoop shots yeah i should have mentioned he, that he's got you know jumping off of the wrong foot or kind of wrong footing shot blockers uh inside hand foot uh, finishes where he's kind of going along and then takes a big step and, and reaches in to get under the guy's arm for a layup but really uh, almost zero physicality right now on both ends and it's i think that's something that's going to be important is to just be able to create a little bit more space for his two-point jumper as a way against a smaller defender to create some shots and then you mentioned the big one as well as you know can he shoot a three ball if they go under i think he will be able to take a long two if they go under um but a, a three is tough because again he doesn't have much versatility to that three-point shot in the way that he does from two-point range should we turn to his defense now
1: one other quick thing i wanted to mention I was surprised that his best dribble stuff, generally there was that in and out I liked, was more up and back rather than side to side. Like he had a couple of nice hesitations and step back type things. And that can work. You know, certainly there have been players that have succeeded with that in the NBA. But I always like guys that have more side to side shake just because it's a lot. It it can work against a wider variety of players. And it opens up more in terms of what the defense can give you.
0: It's also got a pretty solid floater. It can look awkward Mm -hmm. at times, so more of a two foot floater. But it seemed to go in. I think that's something that can be a passable shot for him. And uh, I agree with you. I mean, I think if they're switching him, especially with a guy who's got more size than him, that he's going to be really hard-pressed to create a good shot. Let's turn to the defense. I mean, you assume like, okay, 6'6" great length almost a seven foot wingspan seems like he's pretty quick like you know he's got to be a good defender right like that's got to be a big part of the appeal he just seems like the type of player where oh yeah it's the defense but you know just really not a guy who plays with much effort you know i mean he he, i as a one-on-one guy i mean if you watch his possessions in isolation really unimpressive. i mean he's just like not even in a stance just getting blown by all the time or or you know again the lack of physicality in part due to his small frame if he does cut the guy off, he's kind of doing it as he's running alongside him, and then he gets too much momentum going away. If he gets a little bit of a shoulder into him, he gets totally knocked off, and the guy gets a wide-open jumper from the free-throw line. Uh, I mean, I say he has a tendency to get out of his stance. That's if he even ever gets in one in the possession to begin with. You know, Every once in a while, he can kind of get a steal with his long arms, but you don't really see him getting into the ball at all uh, his Ability to get over screens was negatively impacted by that. You know, we didn't really see him again, you know, really getting close to the ball, being able to squeeze through between the ball handler and the screener died on a lot of screens. And then, yeah, he has some length, but as a switch guy... If you're the size that he is, I mean, you got to battle a lot harder, you know, whether it's fronting guys, whether it's just not getting knocked backwards in the post. So even if it's just like, you know, being handsy and making the guy uncomfortable that way, going for strips, I mean, we just did not see it as all. Now, maybe he can get there. You know, maybe he has quick enough feet. I mean, there are very few occasions when you really saw him move his feet, but he's got a very long way to go. I would not count on him being a good defender at the nba level based on what I saw, i mean he's he's got good length to close out at times he definitely has some tools but whether it's fundamentals maybe maybe it's fundamentals maybe he just doesn't have it, it in him maybe it's a, just a lack of intensity maybe his feet just aren't that quick you know you never know exactly what it is but i mean what he put on film was not very impressive to me i, I think i'm lower on his defense than maybe some other
1: what really concerned me was what i call a worst of both world circumstances so when he got up more on the guy, he got blown by a lot. And then, when he, a lot of times, he was too far back, and then he, guys would pull up, guys would just take the original three. And you can't have both of those things happen. You know, you need to be able to deter at least something. And that tied in with something that I noticed, which was that Gilgamesh Alexander did a nice job when he was in a situation where the guy could only do one thing. So that could be it was late in the shot clock or he had picked up his dribble. Okay, if the guy picks up his dribble, you can get right up on him, put your big arms up, can't do a whole heck of a lot. The problem is that happens very infrequently in a situation of leverage. So he could do that. And I'm sure with time, with development, with coaching, Gilgamesh Alexander can get a lot better, but he's not there now. And so I was very reluctant, you know, I was scared of him because for those who've listened to the podcast for a long time, one of my blind spots is these kind of toolsy guards that can defend but aren't really point guards you know like i had xm number one in his class he kind of fit in this at least from a physical standpoint originally but i felt a little bit better after i watched his defense because i'm like okay he's not the type of guy that i fall in love with too often as much as the other guy
0: yeah so i again we're only going to do the top eight in our in our board but I, I wouldn't say that any of these guys that we've looked at i'm like super high on breaking into that top eight you know, that's a pro- I'm sure a lot of that is just group thing because we've been looking at these mock drafts for a while. And certainly the odds are that one of them or more of them will be better than the players selected above them. But just as far as I'm thinking about it, like there's no one in this kind of 9 through 15 range that we're looking at that I'm just absolutely wowed by at this point. Um, and I think if Shea were a little bit better defensively, if he really were like, oh man, this guy's like really good. And I really could count on that happening. I'm not saying that can't happen, but I, I'm especially with his length, but, uh, I might start to feel that way about him but you know i kind of see him as average defensively average offensively you know maybe could be a starting point guard he's got some size hope the shooting works out if it doesn't then you know maybe it's a real question mark about whether he could even be good enough offensively to be a starting point guard in the nba so just a lot of question marks with him even though i i'm a fan of his game i really like a lot of his skill level his pick and roll operation some of the skill finishes that he has there there maybe just a a few too many question marks about and that's kind of that's how you get guys more this range is when you really they don't have that one absolutely dominating skill and they also have some question marks about them uh anything else on him
1: no let's move on to lonnie walker so lonnie walker miami six foot five 196 pounds with a 610 wingspan and walker you know so one year at miami 16.3 per 527 true shooting 22 usage 35 percent on five threes a game 74 percent on just two free throw attempts per game and that's something that i wanted to kind of start with with walker is that he it seemed to me like when he drove he drove a lot without much of a plan so he would just go into the space and then he didn't have the ability to react really to what was going on and so sometimes he would throw up some crap sometimes he would get caught for a turnover and he doesn't have like a great handle or a great vision so he wasn't able to convert some of the gifts that he has into production that really helped his team
0: yeah and when you look at that too on the defensive end a steal per game you know you'd hope that a guy like him with his tools and his tools are massive uh i mean you know the 610 wingspan excellent dunker he had the third fastest shuttle run at the combine although a lot of the top 15 guys don't do that but uh the third fastest three-quarter court sprint 40 inch max vertical 31 and a half standing vertical which is a pretty big difference between those two actually i I, for generally i just look at the film for guys verticals and to figure out how athletic i think they are rather than the numbers but if there is a number to look at i think the standing vertical is more important than the max vert the standing vertical is usually off at two feet though in the max vert a lot of guys like to do it off of one yeah he's a great nba level athlete you know he'd be not the most athletic shooting guard in the league but one of the more athletic but basically He's athletic and, you know, his shot from three doesn't suck. And yeah, it's kind of about it as far as where he is right now. But he obviously has a ton of potential. Uh, He feels more like kind of a a guy. I mean, when you look at the inefficiency, that true shooting is awful. Schmitz wrote an article about how, you know, his situation at Miami was not good. Uh, But, you know, he's a guy where you watch him on film and he looks like really amazing. But then you look down, it's like, oh, yeah, the ball actually like didn't really go in the basket very much guy
1: and then defensively you're sitting there going why can't why can't this translate more so like for me one of the things i noticed was that first of all he's more reactive than proactive on defense which happens a lot with a guy as young you know these young guys not a big deal but gets caught on screens kind of a lot and he was getting beat by players who are less way less athletic than he is like there was one play in the duke game where gary Trent jr just straight up beat him on a drive and help defense ended up stopping the lip so that ends up helping lonnie walker's defensive numbers but it wasn't helped by him actually playing good defense. And then the thing that absolutely drove me insane with him, and it, this can be coached out, is he kept on freelancing off his own guy, but he wasn't really doing much helping. He was just kind of going off of his guy, something Kevin Knox did way too much as well. And like he was, it was a play where he was helping to the center on a well-covered drive when he, his guy was in the corner and his guy just popped the three. And... Maybe there was some scheme stuff there. I, I, You know, there are always these issues when you talk about when a guy makes a kind of a strange decision or even does that a series of times that it might be scheme. It might not be that. And I don't know Miami well enough to know what their what their idea was there. But it just frustrated me because it seemed like there was a lot of low hanging fruit that he is remarkably adept athletically like it seems like he's well suited to picking that up and a lot of it did not get picked up
0: yeah i don't think we need to spend quite as much time on him i i'm not really comfortable just talking about his team defense when the, these like little short little power pack scouting reports it's tough to get that great of a, a view at it unless you're watching like multiple full games which we didn't have time to do for all these guys he takes just some terrible shots 18 out of 70 on jump shots off the dribble 33 e-field goal percentage 26 percent unguarded catch and shoots and then when he actually got an unguarded catch and shoot again this is a really small sale he's 12 out of 21 86% e-field goal percentage again we've talked about how unguarded can really be skewed potentially only 51% around the rim I think he can improve that though you know he with his athleticism he showed just some really quick hands finishing like ability to like get the ball up quickly uh, onto the glass and if he could actually draw some more fouls that 51 percent around in the rim probably gets a lot better because some of those misses turn into foul shots instead but it it certainly is troublesome i mean two free throw attempts per game in 27.8 minutes i mean that is awful only started 18 out of 32 games as well for for this miami team he's got some ability to work off the dribble you know not really much of a passer at 1.9 assists per game and he had the ball in his hands quite a bit can pull up off the dribble okay shows some nascent skills but just I mean no idea how to play not really that impressive within the team concept offensively so we'll see I mean he's got a lot of potential my feeling just a gut feeling Again, I don't have quite as good of a read on him because the the physical ability and and what he actually showed on the floor were just so divergent. You know, it could kind of go either way with him. My feeling is more that he ends up being kind of like a microwave guard off the bench than a starter. Um, Although defensively, I thought his ability to move his feet on occasion could be impressive. But, you know, I don't necessarily see him being a great defensive player. You know, if he could be a guy who could guard the other teams, one, and get over screens and stuff, that might change his destiny a little bit as well. But he, he's he got a long way to go, but certainly has great physical tools. Uh, anything else on him?
1: No, let's move on to Robert Williams. Williams was a player sort of like Daniel Gaffney has been this year, last year, where a lot of people expected him to come out of Texas A&M after his freshman year. He stayed for a second year, Six ten, 7'5", wingspan. And he is the only big the only big that I can think of who could potentially be in the lottery or even in the top 20 who does not take threes. He was zero for 12 on the season. And one of those concerns with him is Williams shot 47 percent from the free throw line. It was 59 percent his freshman year when he had more attempts. But you think about that and then combine that with, oh, yeah, at Texas A&M, he was largely playing power forward because that's just what the roster construction was with the guys they had on the team this year.
0: Now, as much as that may have hurt him offensively, as a guy who doesn't shoot threes and was playing power forward, defensively, I think he he showed some stuff out on the floor. I mean, the the biggest appeal for him is his ability to move his feet defensively. You know, his overall block rate wasn't amazing, but he was a guy who I thought you know definitely was more impressive as a switch guy than Bamba, and even was playing kind of like a perimeter guy who's guarding a lot of stretch fours, even like getting out on the on the floor, like denying guys every once in a while, putting a little bit of pressure on the ball, even uh i wouldn't pi- quite put him as high as jaron jackson but you know jaron Jackson's a little bit different than williams i think williams might even have slightly quicker feet than jackson uh, one-on-one overall though worth noting that his block stats are nowhere near the same as those guys and, and he doesn't have quite the level of size that those guys do either six nine seven four wingspan uh but he's just very active defensively on the perimeter which i liked and you know one play that exemplified that was he was guarding a guy at the elbow who went to do a a DHO and the guard was beaten. So Williams felt like he had to jump out on, on the guard as the DHO was about to occur. And so he took that away and the DHO actually never ended up happening. The guy faked it. It would have been open, but Williams took it away and then, williams had taken a couple of steps away from the guy who was guarding with the ball that guy was like oh i'm open now i'm gonna shoot this jumper and williams got back and blocked his jumper and so that's the sort of level of activity that he was able to flash on occasion and he was able to really make guys look bad sometimes who tried to drive on him uh, and block their shot uh so i mean his technique is not unbelievable as a switch defender you know he, it's not like he's just totally unbeatable but he had some really really nice defensive possessions in the post i thought he could have been a little bit better You know, guys were able to go over the top of him, get into his chest, knock him back. Would have liked to see a little bit more from him there. Uh, As I mentioned, didn't... That
1: said... I want to mention with his post-up, so the numbers on that were really bad. So I was expecting to see something worse. It was like 1.1 points for possession. And there were a couple of plays where, he, where it was an early, he got ducked in on and it was just saying they're going like, you're too big for this to happen to you. But overall, I thought it was, it was okay. You know, yeah, it wasn't as big like, when you disaster, see a number like yeah. that. Yeah. You, you think that it could go in that direction. And something I wanted to see if you saw this as well, I liked him better. And this ties up with that with that play you were talking about with the DHO. I liked him better as a hedge and recover guy than a switch player. But because of his activity, I thought he could get back surprisingly well. So do the, like, two beats on the player, allow your guy to get there. And there's a place for that in the modern NBA as well. I, I liked him in those circumstances. And he was better defending isolations than I would have expected. Didn't get blown by that much. Just as you said the feet are pretty good it's i don't think he's going to be a full-on switch defender but he was better than i expected
0: yeah i didn't have enough time really to get a good feel for how he is as a team defender as a help defender you know that that's something that's obviously very important as well you know didn't have the type of gargantuan block rate although i i did like some of the individual blocks that he would get and i thought he had good timing uh, on the ball i was
1: impressed with his defensive rebounding though. yeah I mean, so I, th- I thought he did a nice job getting there. And remember, he's mostly playing power forward. And they did a lot of the goddamn 2-3 zone. And he still had about 27% defensive rebound rate. And I liked him overall in-, in the settings. The one big thing with him, and this is true with all of these guys, it- like Bomba's the same way is that they don't need to be jumpy, and I think the co- pro coaches will get some of that out of them. And especially yeah. with a guy like Williams, whose feet are pretty good, just trust yourself that you're in position and put your damn hands up,
0: and he'll be fine. Offensively, you mentioned the awful free throw shooting. He's two out of thirty from three point range in his career. Would take some jumpers, but I think he was like six out of thirty overall on catch and shoot jumpers, even two point range. He hit like one face up jumper in the post at one point. It seemed like he was trying to like be another one of these guys, like oh oh i'm playing the four now see how skilled i am and then you know isn't really uh in the post his post game isn't like totally useless uh you know he can get to a a hook but it's pretty robotic i don't expect him to do much of that i mean maybe if he gets a mismatch and gets deep position you might throw it to him very low free throw rate as well much lower this year uh but the big appeal is his ability to finish around the rim he will crush some two-handed dunks and he's an extremely quick jumper uh and gets his arms up very quickly and just fully extends them and and dunks i thought the quintessential play for him that so impressed me was he caught a big to big pass he was pretty much under the rim and the guy threw it maybe like you know a foot above his head he catches it above his head and you know this is a six nine guy you know it's not crazy and he's able to just without even moving the ball back down jump straight up from there and dunk it with two hands. I mean, that was just really impressive to dunk it that quickly to explode that quickly without even having to bring the ball down at at all was extremely impressive. Uh, And he had a lot of those plays can get up for some alley oops as well. Um, Hands are probably only average. I would say Uh, more of a two hand dunker than a guy who's really going to like reach back, cock it back and dunk it. Uh, But you know, whether it's as a tip dunk threat, quick off the ground for those tip dunks or, pick and roll guy uh, i think he can be a very solid finisher in the nba and so th- that's the appeal of him is guy you can switch uh, on defense rebound his position protect the rim and then uh, you know be good enough offensively uh, as a center to be a rim runner good pick and roll player probably not gonna beat switches himself offensively but you know i think he's a he's another guy who you look at him and it's like yeah this guy could be a totally serviceable center and it wouldn't shock me in the slightest if he ends up being better than you know a couple of the centers that were being talked about in uh you know the top seven or eight
1: i had a moment when watching williams that i just went this is why you don't pay centers that aren't really good a lot of money is because there are players like Robert Williams that will come into the league every year. And, you know, he'll, he'll, I think he'll probably get drafted in the late lottery or maybe just shortly thereafter.
0: Yeah, he's mocked but, to go 18 right now. Uh, but it, it is worth noting, yeah. actually, that behind him, there are really no big men of note in this draft.
1: Yeah. I mean, you get into like Wagner and Mitchell. Uh, oh, yeah. I should t- At some point, I should talk about Mitchell Robinson a little bit.
0: Yeah. You, uh, you want to do that right now? I know you had a chance to watch. Well, let me say one yeah.
1: note quick. Yeah, just a little note. I, I liked his catch radius. I thought that was nice. And also something that Williams does that Bomba's going to have to get better at because Bomba, you know, is a lob throw as well. All of these guys are. And he, Williams was better at clearing kind of the space to jump than Bomba was. And that's a very important part for these guys because if you get a body on them and they don't, that, that takes away some of the lob threat. And I thought Williams did a better job adapting to that sort of pressure and that's something you get all the time in the nba
0: yeah so mitchell robinson is he's now being talked about as being in the second round as a guy remember he didn't play all this year but it was a a highly recruited guy was big on the AU scene you, you had some time to watch a little bit of him today uh you want to just give us you know 90 seconds worth of, of your impressions of him I mean, if, it's, if he's going to go in the second round we probably shouldn't spend that much time on him but you did the work so we might yeah. as well talk about it
1: sure so at the U- team usa training camp he measured 7-1 with a 7-4 wingspan 9-3 standing reach and you see all that i actually watched one of his just straight up high school games playing at you know some division in louisiana and It was hilarious because he only actually tried on defense maybe a fifth of the time. And then offensively, you know, if it was a play that involved him, you know, maybe it was an offensive rebound every once in a while, he would, he would engage. He dropped 44, 18, six blocks and three steals in that game. And he just, and this was apparently a pretty good team in their division. And he just, so he's very physically gifted. He has a, he has confidence in his three point shot Uh, and he had, it took, I think two NBA threes. There were two that it's hard to sometimes tell what the high school line exactly where it is, but it looked like that. And just all the physical capability you could you could imagine it but you just there were very little practical applications because unlike all of these guys we talked about with michael porter where we got to see them play against really good players of their age at in international competition and the hoop summit and all that mitchell robinson never got to do that so i don't know exactly what he's going to be but i i think there's a lot of talent in there and so i'm very intrigued to see where he goes and see what sort of resources they throw into him at the next level because he's and also, we should mention he's already twenty. He's older than than some of these guys. He turned he's april nineteen ninety eight. so that's not as much of a like, oh, he's an unpolished gem at 18. He's a little bit older,
0: but intriguing. How would you describe uh, his athleticism?
1: So it didn't pop like the guys in the lottery this year, but I would say it was it wasn't out of out of place with like an NBA. It looked like it kind of looked like an NBA player. It's hard to tell because he's basically playing against kids like it looked together. Guys looked like middle schoolers next to him, but it looked fine. It was, seemed like when he cared, he moved the floor well. And he never really moved his feet defensively because they didn't have him do anything in that entire game. I watched an entire high school game. He did not set one screen. He did not box out once. So you didn't get a sense of a lot of the elements. How is he that getting are requisite. that? Four points. Uh, basically, his team actually had guys that could throw interior pa- or that could throw entry passes. Yeah. So they would just throw him an entry pass. He would keep the ball over his head and dunk on these little, like, Lilliputian kids. It was sort of amusing in that way, but also reminded me of why I'm, you know, I- I'm very supportive of changing the age limit. But for the guys who don't play the competitive, like, hoop summit type stuff, the film on these guys gets a little bit raw. And so with some of that, you know, didn't see it much, but yeah, I thought the physical talent was there when he cared, he chugged down the floor. He had a couple of plays where he actually like cared about getting there on a closeout. Like he blocked a close a, a three on a closeout from what felt like a mile and a half away. So those sorts of plays, you know, that's more straight line speed than lateral speed, but I thought he did a nice job.
0: couple of stats on him from uh, his drafts express profile. He averaged 20 rebounds per 40 minutes in the EYBL, which is, as of that time in 2017, was the best ever in EYBL history. Eight offensive rebounds per 40, and then led the EYBL in blocks per 40, and was the second best shot blocker in UIBL history after Nerland's Noel. So, uh, you know, he's definitely got some potential. I mean, UIBL stats are, are being viewed as more reliable these days. So people are, ESPN, Kevin Pelton, putting them into their translation. So if that means something, that's, uh, you know, he's an intriguing guy uh looking forward to getting a little bit of a look at him seeing where he goes so should we do our our boards here i mean i think the way we'll do it is we'll do one through eight of the guys that we did the full scouting reports on and you know we can put them into tiers
1: yeah i mean it's this is a challenging draft for me in terms of tiers i in other years, I've gone, like, this is my old real GM style. I would do tiers that are historical. So, like, for me, tier one is, like, the, the like likely superstars and all that. I didn't do that this year, mostly because I didn't take the, take the time to piece it all together. So I just did tiers yeah. relative to each other. I'm not
0: sure if that's how you that, did it. That's too. precisely how I did it.
1: So, for me, tier one is two guys... Luka Doncic is my number one. DeAndre Ayton is my number two. Doncic, we we talked about this a little bit because we, we covered those two guys in quick succession. Both of them are uncertain. Neither of them would be in that, like, Anthony Davis type of class as a number one pick. Anything close to that. They would be in the next tier down because they each have significant question marks. Doncic, it's you know creating separation what he's going to be defensively you know whether he can actually run an offense at the NBA level and then with Ayton it's whether he can apply his physical gifts whether his recognition and his motor and all of that is is good enough to shoulder what an NBA center has to do so I ended up going Doncic over eight and I have those guys as really close I don't think some people think it's a no-brainer one way or the other I do not feel that way but I have Doncic
0: so uh, I'll give you my top two tier one is Luka Doncic by himself just completely unprecedented production ton of feel great passer I, I think just he's right up there for me uh, and I like a lot of these guys uh, a lot but uh, Doncic to me is the clear number one prospect with that size and, and his skill level tier two for me is actually the other seven guys <laughs> wow well okay. no you know what no I, I i shouldn't say that that's not right i, I didn't spend enough time on this i probably should but uh i i would say tier two for me is four guys uh at the top of it i would have trey young then michael porter with a huge caveat that you know i that he's going to be the same player that he was in high school from a health perspective you know i i really
1: oh i I'll, I'll bet you that if Porter was the same player he was in high school, he would be number two for me, maybe even number one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, and the stuff about the Intel on him is not great, but you know, a six eleven guy who can shoot with his finishing ability, his, he just has so much upside and they're just, there aren't players like that that are around you know i mean it's a a lot of this is based on the idea that center is is a a relatively fungible position in today's day and age so porter would be three deandre ayton would be four jaron jackson jr would be five that's the end of my tier two
1: so we basically we ended up in similar places though the order differences are there so i had Dante natin in a section Then my tier two is young jackson and porter so the same same guys just in a a little bit of a different separation i i ended up with trey young over jaron jackson even though i think young has a higher bust potential because the top of the draft is about getting a superstar and i think there is a substantially higher chance that trey young becomes a superstar than jaron jackson does even though i like jackson a lot yeah just the idea that this works for trey young those players are so incredibly valuable in the league now and they're very hard they're hard to find they're hard to cultivate and once they exist, they're incredibly hard to get. Yeah. So
0: it's worth it. Uh, and for Young, I, this was confirmed for me by looking at KP had a piece on just how generally college what statistics in college translate best to the nba and assist rate was right up there right so i mean i think i said this while we did his profile and, and please if you haven't listened to that you want to get a better idea of why i'm so high on the guy who is currently mocked to go number 12 uh, by espm the his great passing is one i mean i think that's something that just is going to translate uh it almost universally has for prospects and then number two just the gravity effect whether it's transition the effect that he had on Oklahoma's transition game I'm worried if he goes number 12 that he almost just won't be enough of a priority for that team and that you know there is an investment with him and I think he's also gonna have a really rough first year and that people are gonna see his first year and be like oh you're full of shit Nate like he sucks like what the hell were you thinking but like Jamal Murray Although I thought Murray had to be good for... But, but nonetheless...
1: <laughs> we, we both did. But that's how people... That's how people talk to us about. Right, right. But I mean, sure.
0: you know, it's, it's kind of more in that early stage, especially the point guards to me about flashes um, than it is consistency and being able to be efficient. But... You know, if they're not going to give him the ball and let him push the ball and, you know, jack from 30 feet, assuming that the ball goes in, we don't know that it will, but hopefully that'll be the case. But I mean, I think he could really just revolutionize the team's transition game, a a pick and roll game. I mean, he's not going to be Steph Curry. He's not going to be that good Steph Curry. And there's an argument that Steph Curry is one of the 10 highest peaks in NBA history. And may not have the longevity to be, you know, a real all-time great. But, you know, Trey Young is unlikely to reach that level. But, you know, poor man Steph Curry is not too bad if he can actually hold up. And I think I'm confident enough and the upside is high enough that that's why I have him as my number two overall guy. I mentioned already, Aiton. The defensive concerns are pretty massive, but at some point, you know, you can't ignore the production. You can't ignore that physicality, and I think, you know, especially with his quick feet, he should be able to get to be passable defensively, even if he's not elite. And then Jackson, you know, just his kind of Al Horford like versatility is why I had him rounding out at tier two.
1: So I, I'm guessing, well, I mean, beyond Trey Young, the most surprising thing for a lot of people there for you is. Is Aiton at four? And I'll be the voice of commenters that I'm sure are going to come. Was Aiton being four, do you think that was more about him or more of you being positive about Trey Young and Michael Porter?
0: I think both, you know, it's just uh, Aiton just didn't wow me. There's nothing about him where I was like, oh yeah, this guy is just going to be just so much of a winner in the nba now if we were talking about him as like a great defensive prospect i think a lot of that would change but it's just you know when you don't have a great defensive center it's hard to have a good defense so if he's only an average defensive center and he's not doesn't have the greatest awareness you know i i just can't get behind him that much um you know i think he has a high floor with, with the points and rebounds and his physicality but i'm just you know i'm not sure how exactly my vision of deandre ayton top 10 player in the nba Like, how that comes to be, I I have trouble picturing Whereas with Porter, with Young, with Doncic, I can see that.
1: Yeah, I think the guy that, even though they're not similar physically, that I I kept on thinking about when conceiving of where to put Aiton on this list is DeMarcus Cousins. Because cousins prodigiously gifted offensively but i mean you still have all these questions about whether his overall apathy and weaknesses defensively and i i think aiden you know the, the benefit of Ayton, like if you're it's kind of like rolling the dice again defensively like with cousins where cousins had some of the tools to be a good defender he just never never was maybe aiden can turn that around a little bit that's why i have him higher is that i think there is a chance that he becomes decent maybe even above average i don't think he'll ever be like an all-defensive guy that would be a big shock to me i'd, I'd love to see it but i, I do i wouldn't expect to, so that's hard and and the point that kind of i think you're getting to is that if we're talking about a a high offensive ceiling guy you'd rather have a high ceiling point guard or even a perimeter player than a center, because it's just harder to make it work. But Aiton has the tools to be a kind of a new age offensive center, which I think is interesting.
0: So get, getting into tier three now, I really struggled with where to put Marvin Bagley. Obviously, the defense is just a massive concern for him. The fact that he's not really like that skilled of a back to the basket guy is a concern and not really having a defensive position is a big concern but i do think with his athleticism pretty great first step pretty smooth jump shot that i think can get to be an asset for him in time you know i, I think that just his offensive upside starts to get to be a little bit too much to ignore in this area uh and then i had bomba at seven and carter at eight now it wouldn't shock me if carter and again this these guys are all in the same tier so i'm very close wouldn't shock me if Carter ends up being better than both of those guys i see both bagley and bomba as being very high risk players uh and carter i think is a little steadier and i also think that carter's weaknesses moving his feet maybe aren't as as much as some people are are saying i think he can get better in that area even if he's not a switch guy i think he can be adequate as a pick and roll defender good kid works hard high skill level but I think I'm still more about upside in the draft. I think Bagley with the offensive upside, Bamba with the defensive upside. I, I have them above him, even if I might have Carter with a higher median outcome than those guys.
1: I went Bamba first of that group for a similar thing for you. I just think the ceiling play is there enough, and I'm intrigued by what he could be. And then I went Carter over Bagley mostly yeah, because— I, I'm not shocked by that. Yeah, expected value.
0: And would would you Bagley, have Bagley in a tier below those guys or no?
1: No, no. I mean because because the ceiling you know he, he's an intriguing player and I think there are ways to kind of counteract some of the things that he's bad at and i also think he can get a lot better you know if he works at it defensively there there's a, a lot that he can improve on and the only other guy I'll mention were so that's my that's the eight that we're talking about And I kind of put Bomba in a mini tier like, I'm not sure that I necessarily have him in a tier above those guys, but I have him a little bit of a gradation. And part of the reason why I do that is that I have both Mikhail Bridges and Miles Bridges theoretically as being in that same conversation. So that's why I wanted to differentiate I wouldn't take probably, unless it was a very specific circumstance, take either of those guys over Bamba, but I could consider it for over Carter and Bagley, depending on circuit.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I'm just not quite comfortable enough with those guys below in turn, you know, having not having watched, you know, an hour of film on each of those guys, instead of, you know, like six hours, the way we did on these other guys. Um, so I can't quite go there yet certainly like I said a number of those guys who are below these these ones are uh likely to be better than at least some of we're talking about in the top 8 here.
1: Yeah, I was just going to mention I didn't because I, again we didn't go beyond this, but I wouldn't be surprised at all to see Robert Williams do very well. It's a lot of these situations it's going to be about circumstance and and where they end up. But I I kind of I drew a little bit of a line in my head between him And some of the other the point guards and all that, just because I I see the path for him as being a successful but not dominant player a little bit more clearly than I do for the point guards or Knox Walker, those type of guys. All
0: right, well, let's wrap things up here. Anything you want to talk about uh, before we depart? Yeah, a couple different things. So, I
1: released Danny Storytime Patreon segments on all three of the draft related pieces I wrote for Real GM. So, those are on how I watch film, how I watch ball handlers and and defense. The defensive piece actually came out on Tuesday at Real GM. So, each of those is in the 15 to 20 minute range. I actually went through and kind of cuz two of the three were written before we started the film work. So, I ended up using some context with those players. I randomly talked about Ben Simmons in the defensive one for a while. Also the thirtieth of my off season previews is up. The Lakers at the recently launched the Athletic Los Angeles. That is up now. And yeah, I think that's I think that's about it. I, with the piece and the and everything else. And I'm really, really excited for tomorrow because I mean it it, it is going to be interesting with the kind of reporting that it seems like the major outlets are going to be reluctant to announce stuff. We don't know exactly what that's going to look like, whether it's going to be not just the picks or whether there are going to be trades or whatever, but it'll be a little bit different. And there is so much uncertainty, it looks like, in this draft. And I have my own feelings now that we've done our we've done some of our film work that I'm very intrigued to see where this turns out.
0: Yeah, as am I. We'll be back, of course, to wrap up the entire draft tomorrow night and... Also worth noting, too, we did it for the Charlotte-Brooklyn trade today. As soon as I woke up, I, I updated our salary sheet, so that's uh, going to be really useful if you want to be a Patreon subscriber for us through Free Agency. All the trades tomorrow, we'll uh, be updating them in as close to real time as we can get. Talk to you all tomorrow when the NBA draft will be in the books.